0: All right, let's turn back to Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, 15 to 28. Once again, we're looking at our superior Savior, Jesus Christ, this morning. uh, We're going to see what it says about the will of God. And Jesus is better, amen? That's been the message of God through the book of Hebrews for nine chapters now. You know, as a pastor, I'm often asked by some of you um, who are seeking guidance about some decision in life, you know, what is God's will for me in this situation or that, and it's a question that I have as well, um, and it's a question I ask when I'm facing some important life decision. This morning, God's going to reveal His will for us, but maybe with a little different spin on on the word will. Uh, He's going to reveal His will for us regarding the most important life decision that we could ever face. Hebrews 9:15 to 28 literally talks about the will of God. For our lives, before we study this together, verse by verse, let's go to the Lord in prayer once more. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It is our moral compass for guidance. Lord, it is such a gift of your grace to us. And it convicts, it transforms, it encourages us. I don't know what we do without it. We thank you so much for it. And I pray that this morning your Holy Spirit would reveal its truth to us. It has been such a blessing, Lord, for nine chapters to exalt Jesus Christ, to see how he is better. We're so thankful that he is our superior Savior. What a blessing it is that we who have trusted in you as our Savior, that we have all the blessings of the new covenant that you made with us through him, through his shed blood, through his death. I pray if there's one... This morning, here in the next service, or who might be watching later that has yet to do that, today would be the day of salvation for us who have. I I pray that we would never neglect this great salvation, never neglect the gospel, but we'd apply it to our lives every day so that we can continue in the faith that we've come to, Lord, so that we can have victory over sin, shine the light of Jesus, point others to him while we await your return, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, verses 15 to 17 um, speak to us about the origin of our salvation. For the last two Sundays in our study in Hebrews, chapter 8 and the first part of chapter 9, it has introduced us and taught us about the new covenant that God makes with those who trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And in verses 15 to 22, the term covenant from chapter 8, at least in the King James, it's switched over to the word testament here in chapter 9. And uh, same Greek word, but translated differently here in English. Uh, I think some modern versions, if I was, as I was looking them up this week, they, they continue the word covenant even into verse 15, but then they change the word to will from there on out. And it's different because God's stressing a different point uh, about the new covenant in our passage this morning. A key thing that the original, most, mostly ethnically Jewish, audience needed to understand was where this salvation came from and the continuity of God's plan of salvation from the old covenant to the new covenant. So where does our salvation originate? Who designed it? God did, right? God did. That's what uh, verse 14 told us. That's where we left last week. I'd like to read that again just because it helps flow into this passage. But verse 14 says, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit Offered himself without spot to God, how much more shall it purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What a great verse showing us that all three persons of the triune God, they all have a role in our salvation. Then verse 15 begins to talk about the disbursements of the benefits of our salvation. We've already mentioned the will of God here just a few moments ago. uh, But we find the changeover from the term covenant to the term testament here in verse 15, it begins with this phrase, for this cause. Well, for what cause? Well, what verse 14 talked about. The sacrificial shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross as a substitutionary payment for the penalty that my sins and that your sins required. It says, for this cause, Jesus is the mediator of the New Testament here in verse 15. And that's how our Bible's divided, right? You've got an Old Testament and a New Testament. Uh, now that word testament has a bit of a different meaning in this second half of chapter 9. What God is presenting to us here is his will for us. So yes, what God wants, 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God desires all men to be saved and to come to a full knowledge of the truth. But also, literally, uh, his will for us as in a last will and testament. That's the picture here. We have seen God use and reveal uh, to us some old covenant types In the last few chapters, that were illustrations. They were Old Testament pictures of a New Testament reality. But here, God is using a current illustration from even our day right now. Uh, We all know what a last will and testament is, right? It's what you will to people after you go on. Um, We see the disbursement of the benefits of that will. Verse 15, let's finish it. Uh, Jesus is a mediator of the new covenant or the New Testament, or or will, so that by means of his death, for the redemption of transgressions that were under the first covenant, under the old one, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Well, this is good news. This is important news, uh, especially for the ethnically Jewish Christians that were the original audience that God is writing to here. It's telling them that Christianity... It's not some new way to be reconciled to relationship with God along with others. It's the only way. It's a way that God has planned all along. See, many Jewish people in the time of Jesus in the early church, they thought of this new faith, this new covenant, this Christianity. They thought of it as some like offshoot of Judaism. There weren't many others at that time. They thought of it as a new religion. And what God's telling us here is it's not. It's the same singular religion that originated with the one true God, even from the creation of the world. It's those Jewish people who refuse to recognize God's promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. They, they are the ones who, in reality, formed a new religion in their rejection of him. God tells them here in verse 15 that this mediator, Jesus Christ, By the shedding of his blood in his death, he redeemed all of the sins that happened under the first covenant, under the old covenant. That is some very good news for them. What he's saying is all of those Old Testament commandments that we've referenced over the past few weeks, all of the Old Testament, Old Covenant worship, the law, the sacrifices, uh, the priests, the tabernacle, the temple, all of these types were to help them place their faith in the shed blood of a promised coming. Messiah. I like this illustration. All of uh, that under the Old Covenant, the sacrifices, everything we read about uh, in the Old Testament and how worship was done under the Old Covenant there, all of those were like writing a check. Those are kind of going out of style even now. We use debit cards and stuff, right? But when, uh, when you write a check, what, what is the paper that it's written on worth in and of itself? Not, not a whole lot of anything, right? <laughs> um, practically worthless. Yet when you write one, most places will accept it just like they would money since it's backed by what is deposited in the bank. And so here's the origination of salvation. Christ's death was deposited, scripture tells us, as as does this passage, from the foundation of the world. That's what God tells us in 2 Timothy 1.9, that God saved us and he called us to a holy calling not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Jesus Christ before the world began. In Revelation 13, 8, it calls Jesus the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So see, God originated this plan of salvation, and while it might be a new covenant as we understand it now, the old covenant was a part of it. The old covenant was pointing to it all along as well. All of those sacrifices that were offered in faith under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, they were backed by this deposit made from the foundation of the world. And when that deposit was released at Christ's death on the cross, all those past checks that were made in faith under the Old Covenant, they were honored. They were paid in full. The benefits of his last will They were dispersed, as verse 15 says, so that they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. All those Old Testament saints that faithfully looked for God's coming Messiah, that put their faith in them as expressed in that Old Testament, Old Covenant worship. Now, verses 16 and 17 continue the point being made with the death of the benefactor. What has to happen for a will to go into effect for the benefits to actually be dispersed death right i mean until then you can draw up a will but whoever draws it up they can change it as many times as they want as many times as the testator as the king james renders it here um the testator of that last will and and testament wants and and that's actually the word god uses here for where verse 16 for where a testament is there is also a necessity that of the death of the testator Uh, And so our our salvation by God's grace through Jesus Christ, that is not a new concept here in chapter 9. It's been a highlight of most of this book so far. But what is new here, or what's at least stressed more strongly, is the necessity of the shedding of Jesus Christ's blood. The necessity of his death. Our salvation could not happen without it. Verse 17 says that a testament, or, or a will, it's only of force after men are dead. Do you realize that the necessity of Christ shed blood and death, that was probably the greatest struggle for Jewish people? I mean, um, a suffering, murdered Messiah? is inconceivable to them. He was supposed to rescue them. <laughs> he was supposed to lead them against the oppressive Roman government and their incorrect assumptions about who God had said the Messiah would actually be all along, it was a major obstacle for their reception of Jesus. What well, God says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, that, that this was a stumbling block to the Jews. It's complete foolishness to the Gentiles. But it was God's revelation of, of who Jesus Christ the Messiah would be throughout Scripture. He needed to die. He needed to shed his blood For our sins. I mean, God told us that much in the very first gospel. Back in Genesis 3.15. Where it promises that uh, the seed of Eve in Jesus Christ. That he would crush the serpent's head. While he would bruise his heel. But there would be a bruised heel. That's how the Messiah is presented in Isaiah 53. A Messiah who is wounded for our transgressions. Who is bruised for our iniquities. And by whose stripes... We would be healed. This was all God's original plan. The origination of our salvation from God the Father. He designed it. Who actually carried it out? Jesus Christ, verses 18 to 26. He's the mediation uh, of our salvation. And, And so in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, all of those things we've been talking about, that was redemption anticipated. That's why they would offer sacrifices. That's why they would worship at the tabernacle and the temple. The sacrificial shed blood of Jesus mentioned back in verse 14, it is necessary for our salvation. By by shedding his blood, by dying for our sins, Jesus Christ is called the mediator there in verse 15. The promised Messiah shed blood. That is the mediation for our salvation. And that's what verse 18 says tells us that all of those Old Testament sacrifices, that's what they anticipated, the redemption that would come through Jesus Christ. That was the New Testament, New Covenant reality that they were all picturing all along. And that's why blood was required back then too. That's really the message of verses 18 to 22. It reminds us that God had Moses sprinkle all those Old Testament, Old Covenant types with the shed blood of the sacrifice. When Israel entered into covenant with God at Sinai, Exodus 24, 8, they're doing so in the sprinkling of blood. It was redemption anticipated through the coming of Jesus Christ. Verse 22 says that almost all things by the law are purged with blood. There was one exception. That's why he says almost all People were in terrible poverty back then, couldn't afford a lamb or a dove or whatever would be required for the sacrifice. They could bring in grain. They could bring in flour. God making a way for everyone in that redemption anticipated. Almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And pay attention here to verse 22. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's no remission of sins. It had to happen. Christ had to shed his blood. The Messiah had to die to be the mediator of our salvation, forgiveness of sins. It can only happen through his shed blood. That's redemption anticipated. I'm glad we don't live in that time anymore where we just have to experience redemption anticipated. We actually live on the other side of the cross where redemption's been accomplished because none of that redemption anticipated, none of that could actually remove sins in and of itself. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant animal sacrifices, it could only cover them. And in regard to the Day of Atonement, only for a year. So all of those types, all of that redemption anticipated, it was provisional, temporary. That which they anticipated, that which they pointed to, the shed blood of Jesus Christ, it had to happen. What was provisional needed to be made perfect. Redemption had to be accomplished with something better, by someone better. Who is better? Jesus. Jesus is better. Verse 23, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens, what they did back then, should be purified with these, but then the heavenly things themselves with better, better sacrifices than these. In verses 24 to 26, it reminds us of what We have learned in the previous chapters that the redemption accomplished by Jesus Christ through his shed blood, through his death on the cross, well, by that he entered a better heavenly sanctuary to represent us, to mediate for us on our behalf before God. Verse 25, it tells us that he does not have to do this often, like the Old Testament high priest did, because he did it once. We sang that just a little while ago, once for all. He did it once in the end of the world to put away our sin by the sacrifice of himself. Redemption's been accomplished through Christ's shed blood for us. I am so glad for that. I'm so glad for the blood. I'm, I'm very glad that we sang about it this morning. I'm so glad that at Dublin First Baptist Church, we make much of the blood of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you this, you can tell if you are in a gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church by whether or not they make much of the blood of Jesus Christ. Because it's necessary. That's what God's Word tells us here. It's necessary, church, if we don't sing about the blood of Christ, if we don't preach about the blood of Christ, really we do not have a lick of hope to offer anyone. (laughs) We don't. And there's a lot of places that meet on Sunday and they don't mention it really you've got a whole not a whole lot more than self-help seminars and TED talks some say it's offensive I'll tell you this much it's not the blood it's not the um, it's not the blood of Jesus that's offensive you know what's offensive my rotten wicked stinking sin that's what's offensive and we talk about it a lot here we talk a lot about the gospel because a radical disease requires a radical cure it's the blood of Jesus. There's no hope. There is no cure for sin. There is no life outside of this necessary blood, shed blood of Jesus Christ. I like verses 27 and 28. They talk about the consummation of our salvation. Consummation, the, the point at which something is complete and is finalized. And that will happen one of two ways. It will happen either when we die or when we depart if we're believers. Verse 27, a lot of times it is pulled away from its context, usually not inappropriately, but but if we leave it here where God puts it in chapter 9, the emphasis of of verse 27, it's appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. The emphasis of this is, is that Christ did not need to die over and over again. His once for all atonement is sufficient. But this verse also provides us with a powerful promise, that we had better seriously consider that it is appointed unto men once to die. And then after that, the judgment. Some religions teach reincarnation. This verse ought to make it crystal clear that that's not the case. It's not what happens. And death is not something that we typically enjoy thinking about. But because of sin, it is a reality for every single one of us. And from the moment we are born, this is what is ahead. At some point, And one of the most gracious things that we are given in God's word is to be questioned whether or not we are ready. And even more graciously, we are given the answer of how we can be ready. We don't know when it will happen. But unless Christ returns first, it will. The gospel of Jesus Christ holds out to us eternal life. The confident assurance that whenever that time comes, we can know, we can know that our eternal spirit will, will immediately be in the presence of our Lord and Savior while we await a reunion with a new eternal body. I'm looking forward to that day. Amen. won't have to worry about where my glasses are. That is, if we have received Jesus Christ as our Savior. If there's been a moment in time in our lives that we recognized our sinful state that was destined for an eternity in hell away from God, when we confessed our sin to him in prayer, telling him that we trust in what Jesus Christ alone did for us on that cross and through his shed blood to pay the penalty for our sins. And if you've never done that, I hope that you will this morning so that you are ready for your death. And if we're ready because we have trusted in Jesus as our Savior, then we will be graced with the confidence that the Apostle Paul uh, describes in Philippians 1, 21, and 22. For me to live is Christ, but to die is what? Is gain. <laughs> Do you know what gain means? Better. <laughs> That's hard for us to understand, isn't it? For me to live is Christ, but to die would be gain. Paul wasn't too sure if he wanted to live, because as bad as things were sometimes. I mean, he's writing this from death row uh, in a Roman jail. Um It was still great to have the opportunity to live for Christ and serve Christ and minister to Christ. But he says here, to be in his presence, to depart and be with the Lord is far better, is what Paul says. Far better. I don't know when that day will come for me, but I know what I want to do when it does. I hope to do what I do right now, what the Bible tells me to do right now. I'm going to take those few good things that I've done for the Lord in this life, and I'm going to throw them on one pile. And then I'm going to take all of the wicked, evil things I've done in this life and throw them on what is sure to be a much larger pile. And I ain't going to bother with either of them. And I'm going to turn my eyes to Jesus Christ, the one who paid for my sins, the one who paid the penalty for that terribly huge pile. And I'm going to focus on him. And by faith, I'm going to trust in what he did for me. Now, I might not have to do that, and, and neither may you, If you have trusted in Jesus as your Savior, we might not have to do that because he may come for those who are his first. That's what verse 28 talks about. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And then unto them that look for him shall he appear a second time without sin unto salvation. So the first part of verse 28 talks about Christ's first coming, his first advent. And it was then that Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. That's why he came, to die for my sins to shed his blood for your sin. And why does it say many there? I thought 1 Timothy 2.6 says that Christ gave himself a ransom for all. Why does it say many? I hope you understand that there's a big difference between what was accomplished in his death and through his shed blood and what is actually applied. His death, his shed blood, powerful enough to take care of every single sin that every single person has ever committed. Powerful enough to take care of every sin That I will ever commit, and you will ever commit, and anyone will. But it's only applied. That's what was accomplished, but it's only applied to those who trust in who he is. What he did for them by actually receiving him as their Savior. Receiving what he is holding out to them, what he's offering them. And let's get to the last part here. It says, for those who have received him as Savior, you may not die. If you've received Him as Savior, you should be right now in that redeemed group that is looking, looking uh, for his appearance the second time. Listen to what God's word said. Here's the promise of eternal inheritance, as, as verse 15 put it. Listen to what God says in 1 Corinthians 15:51 and 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. When? In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall all be changed. That's the consummation, the full and final completion of our salvation. And it will happen one of two ways for the Christian, when we die or when we depart, when Christ appears again to rapture his church to himself for eternity. Uh, that is when the bodies of those who have trusted in Christ as their Savior but, but died before his return, that is when they will be resurrected and they will be made new and they will be rejoined with that eternal spirit that went to be with him the moment they left here. They get to go first. That's what First Thessalonians 4:16 and 17 tells us that the dead in Christ will rise first, rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord, in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. They get to go first. I don't think there's much of a time difference in that de- departing. A moment, a twinkling of an eye is pretty rapid. Are you ready? That's a question. We talked about here in verse um, 26. But now, once in the end of the world. Do you realize you're in the end of the world? A lot of people ask me that. <laughs> I get more questions when things like this have happened this past week. Do you think it's the end times? Well, I know it is because God's Word just said this Jesus Christ came at the end of the world. When did the end times start? When he died on the cross and resurrected, for sure. At Christ's first advent, we, we entered the end times. That's been a while back, about 2,000 years, right? Are you in the end times? Well, you're 2,000 years further along than, than when they began. Yeah, we are. I don't know. Um, we're told to watch. I, I know this. There's not a single thing that's an obstacle for his return. We studied that back in Mark. The fig tree's in bloom. I'm ready. Are you ready? either of those things can happen. At any time. Death or our departing. Have you ever trusted in the shed blood? In the death of Jesus Christ? To save you from your sins? To save you from an eternity in hell? And to give you eternal life with him forever in heaven? That is God's will for you. Literally. That's what he wants to do for you. And it's what he wants you to do because of what he's done for you. Christian, you've done that. But are you really ready? And what I I mean is this. Is there some sin that you need to have Christ wash away with his blood like we sang about earlier this morning? If there is, confess, repent of it. There is such confidence (laughs) to face that moment of death, to be ready for his return. There's such confidence for Christian living when our conscience is clean. That's why Satan doesn't like it to be that way. He doesn't want us to live in that power. He wants to keep us impotent. That's why it's so important that we keep short accounts with God. When his Holy Spirit reveals something in our life, and he says, that needs to go, well, we need to let Jesus deal with it. If that's the case, won't you confess and repent of that sin this morning? Won't you lay it at the foot of the cross Uh, to be forgiven, just as you did when you first came to Christ? And are you looking? As verse 28 says that those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ should be. Are you looking? He came the first time to deal with sin. This time he's coming, that's what without sin unto salvation means. He's already dealt with it. That's not why he's coming the next time. When he appears again, he, he is, he's coming for the eternal salvation of those who have let him deal with their sin. So are you looking? And there is such power over sin, such power for living in victory in Christ when we're looking, when we're looking for his return. I'm going to have Richard come up and lead us in a, one last song. However the Holy Spirit of God has used his word to call you to respond today. I just ask that you'd obey.